Cutting through an overload of information to get to the heart of the story. This is The Point. San Francisco is definitely where the action is right now, as Chinese President Xi Jinping and U.S. President Joe Biden are set to meet Wednesday on the sidelines of the 30th APEC Economic Leaders Meeting. They're expected to inject a dose of certainty in bilateral ties. How will it translate on the ground? Welcome to this special series of The Point with me, Liu Xin, coming to you from California. 284 pairs, that's the number of sister provinces, states and sister cities established between China and the United States since diplomatic ties were established in 1979. In a recent letter to the 5th China-U.S. Sister Cities Conference, Chinese President Xi Jinping said these links have been instrumental in bringing together people from both countries at grassroots level. More than four decades have passed. How alive and kicking is that spirit? I went to Long Beach, Los Angeles, a sister city with Qingdao in East China. The cities have been prepared since 1985. How much has Long Beach benefited from this relationship? How has that link been maintained, especially during the past few tumultuous years? What potential is there to further tap into? I talked to Dr. Mary Barton, President Emerita of the Long Beach Qingdao Association. She has dedicated the past 30 years in maintaining that relationship. Dr. Barton, thank you very much for accepting our interview. Tell us a bit about this friendship, sister city relationship between Long Beach in California and Qingdao in eastern China. How long does the story go back? Well, it goes back to 1985. And uh, some of our city fathers went to Qingdao and realized that we had a lot in common. And they came back and recommended that we become sisters. And so we did. And uh, we've maintained a very close and collaborative relationship ever since for 35 years or more. Wow. Um, is that the longest relationship of sister cities between U.S. and China? Do you have any idea, like, you know, in terms of... I would say it's probably one of the longest. Mm. In Long Beach, we also have a Japanese sister city, which is celebrating 60 years. Okay. So we have a long way to go yet, and we mm. hope we will continue to be mm. good sisters for that many years. What has happened over the past 40 years? Oh my, many, many exchanges. And exchanges of people, exchanges of students, exchanges of gifts. And uh, part of the reason we're here is because we have nearby some beautiful statues of lions from Qingdao that were a gift for us on our 10th anniversary. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, we sent over an ambulance to Qingdao okay. as a token of our 10-year yeah. um, anniversary. But why Qingdao? I would say the biggest reason was the port. And at the time they were established, the friendship cities or the sister cities, we both had a very large navy presence and a very large commercial port presence. And uh, since that time, Long Beach has lost its Navy presence, but we've expanded the commercial uh, port, as has Qingdao. Qingdao, of course, is one of the largest ports mm. in China. What has this 40 years of sister's sister relationship with, with the Chinese city meant for the people in the city of Long Beach? I would say it has meant a chance to learn a little bit about Qingdao and China and 
the Chinese culture. Now, not many of them, of course, get to travel to Qingdao, but some of them do, and we help support that by funding trips and guiding trips over there. But also, we have events here in town during the year where we give them a taste of Chinese culture, like Chinese New Year. Mm. And so from the littlest children to the adults, they get a, a taste of China. Why is that important? Why do you think that, that the, the city continues to want to maintain and even foster, continue to foster this relationship in well, today's world? Sure. In today's world, it's very important, we believe, that people understand the people of the other country. And so sister cities very much relies on people-to-people -people relationships. So we try to help people understand not the politics, not what's going on necessarily in Beijing and Washington, but how do people live? What do they want out of their lives? And it turns out we have a lot in common. Can you give a concrete example or a story or one experience that the, that, that the city that you have witnessed that happened to the people or the city of Long Beach that, you know, d uh, did exactly just what you just described? Sure, I'd be happy to. About uh, ten, almost 10 years ago now, uh, we invited a dance troupe to come to Qingdao. Mm -hmm from the Qingdao... To come to Long Beach, you to, mean? To come to Long Beach, yes. Mm -hmm. And uh, it turns out it's an art school, so the children are trained in dance and other arts, and we arranged homestays for them. Now, some of their parents came along with them, but they allowed their children to go stay in the American homes. I personally had uh, at least two children at that, that visit, and they were maybe seven and nine years old, and they had very little English. But, uh, you know, they were good friends to each other, and by the time of the visit was over, we were good friends with them. We had to learn to use Google Translate. Mm. We brought in some Barbie dolls so they could play with those. Yeah. But we had breakfast, lunch, and dinner together every day, and uh, I think that they got a sense that our home was a safe place for them to be and that they could enjoy. And every other household, there were probably 20 households that did that. Mm -hmm. So uh, we really got to know them as people. It has been a difficult period of time for a couple of reasons. First, you know, the political atmosphere was very bad, and then the pandemic, where a lot of things were said about Asians, even about Chinese specifically. Did your sistership relationship suffer because of that? Well, thanks to Zoom, we've been in touch uh, all throughout the pandemic. Uh, and that has been a tremendous help, I would say. Now, of course, we couldn't go physically there, nor could they come here. And in that sense, I guess you could say it suffered a little bit. But honestly, it was kind of a guiding light that we still had Zoom. We could still communicate. Mm. And so we started what we call a digital pen pal program for college students. We had all set to send college students there, and then the pandemic came. So we just changed to digital pen pals, and we worked to pair students with like students at Qingdao Technical University or University of Technology. Mm -hmm. And for a three-month period, they picked up our topics and they exchanged uh, emails and so forth about them. And so they made new friends, even during the pandemic. 
Yeah. What is the potential, though, you see in people-to-people -people, uh, exchanges between the two sides? Uh, a lot of rhetoric, a lot of talk about, you know, what China really is mm -hmm. competing. You know, in the past it was engagement or, I don't know, a G2, and now it's competing, rival. A lot of people talk about threat. What do you, how do you look at that and uh, the potential in people-to-people -people, or, the, or the resilience that we can get from people-to-people -people relationship? Well, to me, the greatest hope for that sort of thing is with the youth, so like college students. If they learn at that tender age that the people in China are really pretty much like the people here and have the same goals and hopes, I think that by the time they are in leadership positions, they will be able to take that understanding and make more chance of peace, prosperity for everybody, and understanding. Now, of course, that's a hope. We don't know exactly, mm -hmm. but if we don't do that, how will they be when they're 40 years old and they start to get into a leadership mm -hmm. position and all they know is what they read in the news? Mm -hmm. It's just not safe. We need people to, mm -hmm. to know more than what they can get out of the news. Yeah. So are you bringing young people from Long Beach to Qingdao, for instance, or other sure. parts of China? As a matter of fact, in January, we're uh, sending 10 university students to uh, Qingdao and they will stay at the university there, Qingdao University of Technology, and they will learn about what it's like to be a college student in, in Qingdao. Yeah, well, hopefully they, something good come out of that. What do you think of the upcoming meeting between Chinese President Xi Jinping and U.S. President Joe Biden? Um, there are mixed expectations, you know. What do you think can come out of it? And uh, do you think it is important, even if some people are very skeptical about what concrete you know, flaw can yes. be put under, under the relationship. Well, I have uh, an enduring belief that once you know somebody in person, once you've looked them in the eye, that the, you'll never be the same about them. You won't believe the absolute worst things you hear about that person. And it's my hope that that will make a difference, really. You look into the other person in the eye and you shake their hands and you feel whether they're sincere or not. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, looking ahead, now that we've moved out of a very bad period of time in bilateral relations, looking ahead, what do you think are some, some of the things we need to keep in mind if we're not going to repeat, you know, the same kind of mistake? For either side, I'm sure you think about it all the time. Well, I do, I do, and it's, a, a, it's certainly a thorny issue. Um, I hope that the leaders on both sides will take a long-term view and not be so concerned about their own power base that they feel they need to protect, that they will look at the future of the world and the implications when two major powers are somewhat at each other's throats, perhaps, that that's just not good for their own children, their own grandchildren, and for the rest of the world. So our program, our broadcast to the world, okay? But also some of it can go out to the Chinese audience. What kind of messages do you want to send to the Chinese audience who have also grown, let's say, into a combination of confusion, shock, frustration, hopefulness, but also skepticism about, the, about America? You know, that all of a sudden America want, see, sees us as an enemy, at least from what's being said in the news. What would be your message to the Chinese people if you have that opportunity? 
Well, I would have to say that the typical American person is not at all interested in a fight. Not at all. We would much prefer to be commercial partners, to be uh, friends, to learn about each other, and not to you know, win at all costs. Absolutely not. So take hope in that and don't believe all the bad things you may hear in the news. To the American public, because you have been to China more than a dozen times over the past 35, you've seen um, the whole transformation. What would you say to the, the people who are jogging here in Long Beach? Almost the same. The people in China are not on a day-to-day -day basis interested in conquering America or conquering some other country. They want to get by with a nice life for their children. They don't want to spend their time fighting or sending their children off to the army, no. But some people are saying, look, China is catching up. China will overtake us. You know, if you look at trade, China is really doing not bad. Mm -hmm. um, so there are people ha having these, this fear that, you know, we're going to be overtaken by China. We will lose the status of the world's only superpower. <coughs> what would you say to that kind of um, question? That's a really big question. Uh, my own personal thought is that being a world superpower takes a lot of responsibility and maybe we don't want to be the world superpower anymore, but we do want peace and we do want to have the opportunity to learn and know about other people. And if we're fighting each other, we won't do that. So of course China has three times more people than we do. Of course there's a possibility that by some measures they will outpace us. But when you look at the lifestyle of the individuals, the GDP per person, um, we're still not to the point where there's China a is big difference. To, yes, 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 is going to overtake us. So I think we should be more concerned with making the pie bigger for mm -hmm. everybody instead of wanting all the pie pieces for ourselves. Some people will say you're an idealist. Yes. Do, do you hold on to that, knowing that you know you, your expectations could be? considered ro too rosy? Yes, of course. Pollyanna-ish is the word we use here, Pollyanna. But um, if we give up hope, then what do we have left? It's really important that we have some hope through whatever troubles we're going through. Thank you very much, Dr. Mary Barton. Oh, you're most welcome. My interview with Mary Barton, President Emerita of the Long Beach Qingdao Association. When we come back, I talk to a Chinese-American scholar on his views on the upcoming summit between presidents of the world's two largest economies. He will tell me why Wednesday's meeting between the two sides gives him some grounds for optimism. Making room for all opinions and seeing events from more than one side. This is the point. The leaders of the world's two largest economies, President Xi Jinping of China and President Joe Biden of the United States, are meeting in San Francisco. This marks President Xi's first visit to the country in years and first in-person meeting with his U.S. counterpart following their summit in Bali almost exactly a year ago. Against the various ongoing crises the world is witnessing, anticipation is running high. How will this meeting impact the future of two-way ties? Would it be 
able to put relations back on track, I was joined online by Professor Zhao Sui-shen, Director of the Center for China-U.S. Cooperation at the Joseph Corbel School of International Studies at the University of Denver. Professor Zhao, welcome to The Point and thank you very much for joining us. What are your expectations of this much anticipated meeting between Chinese President Xi Jinping and US President Joe Biden in the coming days in San Francisco? This is a very important summit. The leaders uh, have not been met uh, since last November in person and the, the relationship uh, has been in a very bad shape. In fact, uh, although the uh, cabinet members from the, the Biden administration has visited China and uh, some other delegations have visited China. And the Chinese uh, leaders, uh, Wang Yi, foreign minister, and uh, vice premier, He Lifeng, have visited the U.S. But uh, in my mind so far, those communications have not produced a substantive accommodation uh, in the relationship. Uh, at most, it has uh, uh, reduced the tensions and prevented uh, the should the willingness of uh, both sides to prevent the worst case scenario that is uh, uh, misperception and misjudgment would lead to uh, escalation of uh, conflicts. But I have not seen any specific progresses uh, in the uh, relationship. Uh, what I call this uh, at this moment is uh, both sides are talking the talk, uh, walk, walking the walk. We have continued to uh, challenge the other side of uh, red lines uh, because uh, uh, some really uh, roadblocks. So the United States and China have uh, both have each their own aspirations. What do you think are the aspirations of the United States? Yeah, for Joe Biden. He is uh, very clear that uh, he does not want to be the president and that come into a wall with China. So from very beginning, he has uh, made that very clear. He wants to keep the line of communication open and to responsibly manage the competition between China and the U.S. Uh, for quite a few years, since uh, the last years of the Obama administration and uh, the Trump administration, the high-level uh, communications somehow suspended those uh, security and strategic dialogue and economic dialogue uh, suspended. And there were a lot of uh, misperceptions uh, and also a lot of misjudgments. So uh, Joe Biden has met the great effort, I think, try to resume this communication and uh, try to stabilize uh, the relationship. What are the expectations from China? There is a misperception in China that uh, he needs China for his uh, uh, inaction campaign. I don't think that that is the case. Uh, uh, he wants to stabilize the relationship and uh, prevent uh, this relationship, the free fall in last uh, those years in the U.S. domestic environment, he has faced a lot of resistance from the Republican Party and also from his own party. Do you think the Biden administration is sincere in stabilizing this relationship? The, the U.S. Uh, side needs China 
to uh, work with them in order for uh, Joe Biden's uh, uh, election next year. I don't think that's the case. Uh, uh, he has uh, been very clear that uh, the competition uh, is inevitable. Because of the competition, we have to be responsible to manage that, prevent that uh, competition from slipping into a wall, a cold wall and uh, a hot wall. So he is uh, facing very strong resistance in domestic um, politics. Uh, so I don't think that's a case. So China side working works with China, with the U.S. Uh, uh, should understand that point. It's not U.S. and China. Both sides re- needs uh, uh, each other. That's the situation at the time. That's why I think it's very important for these two countries. Why do you think it is important for China for the Chinese side to accept this invitation and come to talk to the U.S. president? Uh, there are many people uh, said that China's economy is in problem. That's another Americans thing. I think that's also a misperception. China's economy is indeed in problem. But uh, in the meantime, China has its own strength. And uh, from China's perspective, I see there is a, a requirement for China side also to prevent this relationship uh, from slipping into a conflict. That's not in China's interest either. So, but China side has been somehow reluctant for quite a while. I still remember when there were those kind of meetings, uh, China's media, all Chinese government always said it's at request of America. So America is uh, making all the mistakes. All the responsibilities are squarely on the American side. So Americans have to make concessions to, uh, to, to talk. Now Americans have taken very proactive actions try to renew, resume those uh, 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 talks, communications. I think China got that. And it's in China's interest to do that. And China make very positive responses at this point. I think that's a very good progress. Uh, but we cannot just for uh, talk for talk, communication for communication. We really have to focus and find uh, ways to accommodate a compromise on the issues. At this time, I think the most important issues uh, for me, for both sides, are two aspects. One is uh, over uh, uh, emphasize uh, ideological conflicts, uh, tries to uh, impose its own values on the other side. The second is uh, uh, Chinese pan securitization. I think it, it is indeed a securitization of uh, all aspects of the relationship. We have to de-link security from many okay. other issues. So you talk about two points. One is uh, the um, everything has been given an ideological dimension, and the other is that every issue has been linked to national security. Um, isn't that what the United States has been doing, according to the Chinese understanding? The same problems China Espionage Law uh, uh, adopted uh, this year almost put everything in the national security uh, ground. And uh, American business, uh, especially those are data. So these are issues that are very difficult to compromise. And uh, um, what kind of solutions do you think the two sides can work out? I don't see a solution at this time on those issues. Uh, both sides, uh, at this time, I see there is a very positive signs 
that is, they are willing to find solutions. That itself is a progress, but I have not seen any ways they have found to uh, accommodate each other's uh, uh, demands or interests. And in that case, I think other than what I talked about desynchronization and de-ideologicalization, um, the two sides uh, may want to focus on those non-traditional security issues, such as climate change, pandemic prevention, and uh, transnational crimes, including those uh, the uh, drug uh, uh, trafficking, which Americans are very concerned. In fact, for Americans, I can understand that, uh, those are, uh, issues are more important than Taiwan issue for the domestic uh, politics. China side have to uh, uh, pay attention and uh, work with the United States on those issues. And on climate change uh, uh, also is uh, very important for U.S. China has linked the climate change with the overall relationship. And that is uh, difficult uh, for those both sides. And also nuclear uh, proliferation and uh, arms control, those are new, newly emergent areas, AI, uh, artificial intelligence, uh, how to prevent them uh, from using in the military uh, arena. So there are so many issues uh, these two countries uh, share uh, concerns. Uh, if we can talk about those issues and also to establish a regular working level communication and also negotiation channels at this time, they have not talked about negotiations. They talk mostly are uh, consultation. Just uh, tell you what I think. What are our side of policy? They have not uh, entered yeah. negotiations. Yeah. Pandemic uh, prevention on the drug issues. Uh, 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 fentanyl, for example, uh, is a very specific issue. USI mm, uh, right. has, uh, uh, has been very concerned. So we really need to negotiate on those issues. Of course, those are bigger geopolitical competitions, uh, uh, like a Taiwan issue, like uh, those uh, 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 hot um, spots in South China Sea. Thank you so much, Professor Zhao, for accepting our interview. And with that, we come to the end of this special edition of The Point with me, Liu Xin, coming to you from California. As always, you can follow me on Facebook and Twitter using the handle Liu Xin in Beijing. You've got The Point. <laughs> <laughs>